Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. It seems like it's been a while since I've been with you guys, so it's uh, exciting to be back. I've missed all you guys so much in this sort of, sort of venue. But um, I feel like the God, God's given me some pretty good things to share today, and I just want to share those things with you. And he, he really put this, this, thing, this theme of renewal on my heart. That's what I'm going to go with this morning. And the reality is that God has started a process of renewal. And it started in Mary's womb over 2,000 years ago. And it will by no doubt be consummated at Christ's second coming. God's making all things new. And that includes you and me. And I'm so happy and stoked that our God is in the business of turning pain into joy. Despair into hope. Sinfulness into forgiveness. Death into life. Maybe you've disconnected yourself from that because you've been following Christ for so long. But... That's reality. Jesus turns death into life. And the beauty of all this is God has not only started the process of renewal within you and me, but He actually calls us to be agents of renewal in the lives of others. And this is all going to start at our affection and devotion towards God as we find Him as our treasure, as we see Him as the most satisfying thing, as we love Him with the whole of our lives. And it's from that place of total affection and satisfaction in God that it's going to begin to outwork and permeate through love into the lives of others. The reality is, is God is doing a renewal work around you all the time. The question is, are you aware and willing to step into that work of renewal? He wants to renew the lives that don't know His glory, that don't know His majesty. He wants to renew the lives that don't know His love, and He wants to demonstrate that through you. Despite how imperfect that may be, all of the heaven's wisdom has decided to use you and me. So let's take a look at our text today. Uh, It's going to be Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, and it's the same text that we've been looking at over the past three weeks. But now we're going to begin to pick up the latter half of this section of Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. So a little bit of a precursor here. The commandments, love God with your everything and others as yourself, are naturally connected. The obedience to the second will flow from the enjoyment that we find in the first. And I use that word enjoyment on purpose there because God is to be enjoyed. The first commandment is to be enjoyed. We're supposed to enjoy Jesus. God will satisfy your soul beyond anything this world could ever offer you. So the obedience to the second command will find its obedience to the second will flow from the enjoyment that we find in the first. So what we want to do is take all that we've learned over the last three weeks and take that into the rest of this text as sort of a a pre-understanding and priority in our lives because when we're loving God with everything, with the whole of our lives, this will naturally flow into the lives of others. Perhaps this is why Jesus strung these two commandments together and he wasn't willing to see them separated from one another. So let's look at the text. We're familiar with it. We're going to focus on verse 39 today. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, 
they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and prophets. Let's pray over that. Lord, we praise You here this morning. We ask that You would come and and teach us. God, I pray that You would help me to get out of the way and You would just show us what it means to enjoy You fully and from that place of satisfaction that we would be able to love others the way that we love ourselves, God. This command is beyond us, Lord. We just ask that You would empower us and show us how to do this, how to represent Christ rightly on this North Shore, God. So would you fill this place with your spirit now? We're desperate to hear from you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The law of God is really a reflection of who God is. The law helps us understand what God is like, right? It demonstrates his nature, his character, his essence. The law of God would also demonstrate to us our utter failure to measure up to the law. The law would actually show us that we're actually contrary to the character, nature, and essence of God by the simple failure that we don't live up to it on a daily basis. So the law's purpose could be summed up to show us what God is like and to show us our own sinfulness. And much of the book of Romans would testify to this. And the commandments of the law themselves could be summed up to love God with everything and others as yourself. And I really believe knowing these four things is really the beginning of renewal. What God is like, our own sinfulness, loving Him with the whole of our being, and others as ourselves. Because if you think about it, we were once completely dumb and dead to these things. We had no idea what God was like. We were living our own life. Romans told us that we've all went our own way. We weren't interested in God. But because God has sought us out with His great love, we're now able to begin to comprehend who God is. And when we comprehend who God is, this in turn showed us a little bit about ourselves. Namely, that we were in desperate need of forgiveness. And once we came to grips with that reality, we were pressed and pleased to find Jesus. And in Jesus, you became a new creation. You were renewed. And suddenly, His desires became your desires. And His desire is that we would be completely satisfied in Him, and then from that place of satisfaction, love others as ourselves. That's really important to grasp. For us to be conformed to the image of His Son is His desire. To know Him and to become more like Him. Now, this is not to diminish the uniqueness of your soul. We're all snowflakes for sure. But to create character in you that is worthy of the name of Christ. And it's in that character that the world will know that Christ is in you. And I really wanted to read this one section of Scripture that talks about renewal. Uh, This is in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Can anybody testify to that? Yeah? (laughs) 
For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at things not seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. In this renewal process, we begin to see things differently. God begins to reveal Himself to us, and His desires become our desires. And His desire is for us to love Him with all of our being and others as ourselves. So when Jesus sums up these two commandments, He's showing us what is chiefly good, right, and just. He would even say that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. I mean, think about that for a second. The Creator of all things says these are the most important. These are the culmination of what I desire for humanity and everything else is detail. And how fitting is it that the God of the universe would show us that the most satisfying things through His law are upheld by love? So what do we do with the law? Do we just throw it away? Do we just forget about it? No, obviously not. The culmination of the law is very good. We all want to live the good life, a life that's worth living. And I believe the good life could be characterized by simply living out these two principles. Jesus not only told us that these were the most important, but did He not tangibly demonstrate it? We see this in His earthly ministry. Throughout the entire Gospels, we see His whole affection and devotion to the Father. We, we see this relationship between the Father and the Son outwork itself in His death on the cross when He gave Himself up for us and His ultimate expression for us. And it's really that His death on the cross is the greatest expression that humanity will ever know as love for another when the perfect, pure, righteous One died for the filthy, unrighteous. You see, Jesus, He loved the Father with all of His being and others as Himself. Okay, so, so what about us? Loving others as yourself. We're not Jesus. And this is a radical command to say the least. But as I've said, I believe you're going to find the ability to carry it out as you live into the first command. You could even say that loving others would be a direct, tangible demonstration of your obedience or satisfaction found in the first command. The outward expression of love in the Christian life will ebb and flow from our satisfaction found in God. Can you guys kind of pick up a theme here? Are you guys satisfied in God today? Or are you finding yourself satisfied in lesser things? Do you have a consistent satisfaction in the one who satisfies your soul? That's really the question. So, I think that we could easily ascertain that if a man or woman did not have a true love for people... And have, this, have a claim to have a great love for God, we would, we would say they've deceived themselves. Or they've hidden themselves behind a religious veneer. John painted this reality this way in 1 John. He says, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's this classic John. I would not want to hang out with that guy. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he, who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So you can see John's logic process here very clearly. If you don't love others, you really don't love 
God. To say that you love God while neglecting the needs of others is simply an illogical flow of the Christian faith. It's like saying two plus two is six. It doesn't make sense and it's not logical. A love for God will naturally outwork itself into loving others. Jesus so powerfully illustrates this in Matthew 25. And the context of this is Jesus is speaking of the future final judgment. And this is, this is pretty gnarly. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now catch this. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. This is a really, really profound statement that Jesus is making. In a very real way, when we are led by the Spirit to meet the needs of a brother or sister in this specific context around us, we are doing that act of love to the King of the universe. But also notice what Jesus says to those who refuse to reach out and meet the need of another. So this is continuing on. Verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me. And naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not take care of you? Then he will answer them and say, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So it almost seems like we're saved by doing good works. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you don't do these things, you're not going to be saved. But that's not what this passage is actually saying at all. And notice this, I love this. The true followers of Christ in this passage are shocked to find out they were doing these things to Jesus Himself all along. And that's because they weren't working for any sort of salvation. They simply had a changed heart. And this was the natural expression of that inward reality. And I really truly believe that that love of God is going to register in your life when you truly believe and comprehend who Jesus is. When that knowledge of Jesus moves from intellect to action. And I love what Paul says in Ephesians. Speaking of the love of Christ, man, this is so good. He says, May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. 
It's that great love of God that's experienced in His presence that does something to the human heart that literally just cannot be contained and it should naturally and logically flow into the lives of others. C.S. Lewis put it so simply in his book, The Great Divorce, you cannot love a fellow creature fully till you love God. Okay, now, all that to say that loving God with your everything is absolutely foundational to loving your neighbor as yourself. So it would be really foolish for me to get up here and start talking about loving your neighbor as yourself without making that sort of foundation. You'll even notice the scribe in our text, he asked for the greatest commandment, as if there was only one. But then Jesus turns around and gives him two. And that's because these are interconnected. There's a significance in their ordering for sure, but they will flow from one another as an expression of the Christian life. So, as Tripp has been teaching on this the last three weeks, I know that we've got the love God with everything down pat, right? We've got that whole thing hammered down. I mean, God's perfect. He's so easy to love. I mean, I love me some Jesus. But when you start talking about people, it becomes a little bit more difficult, right? But I think the more time that you spend with Jesus, then it becomes more easy and natural. So we want to take all that Tripp has been talking about and begin to understand what exactly does it mean for me to love my neighbor as myself. Sort of a funny phrase, yeah? And this is where things will really start coming to light. This helps us understand if we're really loving God or if we're just kind of hanging around God. So for the rest of our time, we're just going to answer three questions. What does it mean for me to love my neighbor as myself? How do we do it? And how does it bring renewal in the lives of others? So what does it mean? How do we do it? How does it bring renewal? So the first question, what does it mean? Well, first of all, who is my neighbor? This question has been asked before, specifically in Luke chapter 10, where there's a lawyer and Jesus, and they're having this religious conversation. And the lawyer basically wanted to justify himself, excuse me, through the law and asking, who is my neighbor? Now, maybe the lawyer had deceived himself into thinking that he was justified if his neighbors were those in his life already that he already loved. Maybe the ones that were in his same socioeconomic class, people that were easy and natural for him to love. And Jesus, classic Jesus style, instead of going into any sort of direct answer, begins to tell a parable. Because he wants this man to think. And you guys probably know the story, but to make a short story shorter, a couple of religious Jews blatantly pass by a man who is in desperate need, a priest and a Levite. So who stops? The Samaritan stops which surely cost him time, money, and convenience. But the thing is, he stopped. And he showed radical compassion. And then at the end of the story, I love what Jesus does. He flips the question back over to the man. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, go do the same. You'll notice that the lawyer wouldn't even say the Samaritan the true neighbor, he says, the one who showed mercy. And there was extreme enmity between Jews and Samaritans of that day. But through this parable, Jesus is making a robust point that your neighbor is not just the person who is on the left or the right of you or those you just like or or those who are just like you, but 
It's really that group of people who are in your sphere of influence. The people that are just in the rhythm and flow of your everyday life. From the person who does actually live next to you to the homeless person that you pass on the street every day. To the person that you're going to sit on the plane with for the next eight hours. Those are the best neighbors. To the people that you quite frankly don't like. These are your neighbors. For real. What Jesus is doing here in the story of the Good Samaritan is expounding upon who is my neighbor. In response to a religious person who wanted to diminish that scope of responsibility. So now... What does it mean to love these people the way I love myself? Kind of a funny phrase. So what Jesus is doing here, he's not prescribing a self-love when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But rather, he's assuming that you already love yourself. The Bible does not command a self-love, but the Bible assumes that you already love yourself. And this is naturally true. Most of us probably took a hot or warm shower this morning or last night or both. Looks like most of us clothed ourselves before coming to church this morning. That could have got real awkward really fast. Very loving thing to throw on some, some britches. Uh, I've noticed some really nice looking haircuts out there as I was getting ready to teach this morning. You guys probably fed yourselves before you came and you're probably going to feed yourself soon after you leave this place. This built-in concern for yourself is not commanded, but it's already assumed. Nor does the Bible condemn it. The Bible is not saying it's evil for you to want to shower, clothe yourself, or to have a nice haircut. Nor is it bad for you to want to have nice things, avoid pain, to have a steady income, or to experience happiness. These are all absolutely God-given natural desires for you to care for yourself. Now that's not to say all desires are good and right, but that's probably another sermon. But it all boils down to this. And this is important. That love that you have for yourself is to act as a guide in what it means to love others. In other words, in the same way that you seek things for yourself, you should seek those things for others. And this is where love moves from just a feeling into an action. It's easy to say, man, I'm just, I'm just going to love everybody today. You know, It's so easy to do that. It's good vibes. It's, it's love. And it's, it's not like that. And when Jesus says this, he really takes loving your neighbor out of the ethereal and abstract, and he makes it concrete and relatable. He's saying in the same way that you're caught up in your own deal, the same affections that you have for yourself, take that to your neighbor. This love that you have for yourself, it's natural, it's unhesitating, it's instinctual. When we're threatened by danger, we love ourselves. When we're thirsty, we love ourselves. When we're cold, we love ourselves. When we're hungry or hangry, we love ourselves. And when I'm hangry, I'll definitely love myself. When we're lonely, we love ourselves. We love ourselves in each situation by simply meeting the need that's on hand. And it's in the same way that God tells us to go love others naturally, unhesitatingly, instinctually. Just the way that you love yourself. Not easy, huh? So now that we know who our neighbor is and how we should love them, how do we do this? How do we even begin to live in a way like this? 
as I said earlier, this is a radical command, to say the least. And it, it seems impossible to live out on any sort of consistent basis. You may have a streak here or there of truly loving others as yourself, but then we have the tendency to regress back into making ourselves the only and chief aim of all of our affections. But church, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that you are truly and consistently loving others as yourself when you are fully surrendered to God in all things? You guys ever notice that link? I think this is the link between loving yourself and loving your neighbor. A surrender to God, a yielding to the Holy Spirit, which all comes in the package of loving Him with our everything. It's during these times of surrender that you love others spontaneously, instinctually, unhesitatingly. You're like, oh, there's a need. I need to meet that because the love of Christ compels me. It simply becomes a natural expression of who God is through you as you're yielding to the work of the Spirit in your life. And it's by to no surprise that you're drawing the ability to love others in this way from a fully surrendered heart because it's God who is working through you. Because a fully surrendered heart is a fully usable heart. And a man or woman who is loving others as themselves on a consistent basis is completely and absolutely indicative to their full surrender to God. You see, it's from that place of surrender that you will consistently and habitually love others the way that you love yourself. Really interesting. As I was studying this text this week, I noticed the Apostle Paul picks up on this. Go figure, right? Basically, Paul sums up the New Testament as love your neighbor as yourself in two places in the New Testament. And he does this in Romans chapter 13 and Galatians chapter 5. So Paul, he sums up the law as love your neighbor as yourself two places. But what's interesting about that in each chapter around the immediate context of loving your neighbor as yourself, he talks about the flesh and the spirit. And it's as if he's given us the answer to the question, how do we do this? How do I love my neighbor as myself? Now, not that we're justified by loving our neighbor as ourselves. The justification was taken care of on the cross. But if I'm really a follower of Jesus, this should be a natural and consistent way of the Christian life. And I think Paul's given us the key to how to live in this way. So I want you to notice what Paul says in each of these chapters. So this is the immediate context of loving your neighbor as yourself. He says in Galatians 5:16, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Romans 13.14 But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and no, make no provisions for the flesh in regards to its lusts. So what Paul is showing us here is loving your neighbor as yourself will be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit and making no provisions for yourself. He's showing us this is a God thing and a you thing. This is your work and it's His work. He's showing us the practical outworking of being a new creature in Christ is making no provisions for the flesh. And it's going to be the power of the Spirit that comes into your life as you surrender to Him. Because if you're in Christ this morning, I know that you're probably already painfully aware of the reality of the two natures that you already possess. 
we're always going to struggle with sin and the old nature. That's easily given over to sin. And this becomes a real problem for the Christian, right? Because we've been given this new nature that really wants to love our neighbor as ourselves, yet we have this old nature that tends to regress and make ourselves the chief end of all of our pleasures. The old nature wants to remove the love your neighbor part and just kind of keep the love yourself part. But to bring renewal into the lives of others, to truly love your neighbor the way that you love yourself, we, we have to walk in the Spirit and make no provisions for the flesh. It's absolutely foundational. And I just really, really, really want to quickly unpack what both of those mean. So to walk in the Spirit is to make decisions according to the Holy Spirit's guidance. Or another way to say it is simply allowing the Spirit to lead your life. And the Spirit's going to lead us all in different ways. As we're in prayer, as we're in the Bible, as we're in community, the the Spirit's going to lead you differently than He may lead me. But if you're submitting to that leading, you're going to have the same desires as the Spirit. But if you continue to fight against the Spirit's work in your life, you're not naturally going to love your neighbor as yourself. I think this one commentator summed up this walking in the Spirit very well. He says, Walk by the Spirit implies both direction and empowerment. That is, making decisions and choices according to the Holy Spirit's guidance and acting with the spiritual power that the Spirit supplies. To walk in Scripture regularly represents the pattern of conduct of all of one's life. You see, the Spirit not only wants to give you those right desires and just kind of dangle them in front of you, like, here's the right thing to do. I know you can't do it. It's not like that. He wants to give you the right desires, but then He wants to give you the power to make those right desires realities in your life. And it's all going to start at a place of submission so that the Spirit can begin to work through you. Now, making no provision for the flesh, this is where things become a little bit more practical, where the ball is in your court, so to speak. The word provision here has an importance and meaning. It means a forethought or thought out in advance. And it carries the idea of planning something out. It's something that goes from your mind into an eventual action. And James talks about this in James 1, 14-15. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's the thought process. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And what Paul and James are saying here is, don't let these thoughts even enter into your mind. And if they do, which they probably will, take them captive. And don't let them turn into sin. Don't give these thoughts a place to fester. Don't allow your lusts to dominate your life. Paul gives us more practical advice in Philippians 4.8. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. As he's summing up the letter, he says, fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You could probably just plug Jesus into every one of those. You have to win the the battle of your thought life and walk by the Spirit. A life that is regularly submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. And I truly believe as you live into these things, you're going to find the capacity to love others the way you love yourself. So, 
As we wrap this up, I want to now begin to connect this command. This is where we're going with the whole thing. Love your other, love others the way you love yourself with renewal in the lives of others. And to answer that last question, how does this bring renewal? Loving others as myself. Look what Paul writes. This is really good stuff. Look at Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's you. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's important. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There it is again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. That's super important. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. And in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. God is making all things new. And if you're in Christ this morning, you are a new creation. Whether you're living into that reality or not, the moment that you placed your faith in Christ, you became a new creation. But it's by God's design that that renewal process would not stop with you, but it would continue through you. So catch the gravity of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the God of the universe, the God of all things, has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. He's entrusted us with the, with the gospel. He's entrusted us with the work of renewal in the lives of others. And you really had to kind of stop and just kind of trip out on that for a second. But God wants to use you to renew the lives of others. Every day you wake up, you can go ahead and count on it. God has given you His Spirit inside of you. You are literally a new creation. And for that renewal process to stop in you, it's a terrible thing. God desires for that to continue to work through you as you submit to Him and push out into the community each day. You can just count on it. God wants to use you each and every day. The question is, are you aware and willing to step into that work of renewal each and every day? And I really believe that this is all going to start by and be accomplished through simply Loving others the way that you love yourself. It's so simple, but yet it's so hard. And only the Spirit of God can do that through a man or woman. And it's through loving others the way that you love yourself that you will begin to bring new life to others. I don't know if you've ever led anybody to Christ or if you've been a part of any meaningful discipleship, but it's easily one of the most amazing experiences ever. Because you get to see a life right before your eyes being renewed. As they tangibly experience Christ's love for the first time being expressed through you. It's loving, loving others. Man, I wish, I wish I could preach on this for like three weeks. But loving others, it's, it's massively important in the plan and design of God. But I don't think that we should expect to truly love others if we're not yielded to the power of the Spirit working through our lives. 
nor should we expect to have any assurance, right, that we love God if we're not loving others. So I would encourage you today to be in the presence of God, submitted to Him, so that your life will reflect His love that He has for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You for these truths. God, sometimes the Christian life seems so hard and ethereal and far off, God, and beyond us. But the reality is that Your commands and Your Word is good, Lord. So I pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit so that we can begin to live into these things. Show us that the Bible, Lord, is just not some book that's not attainable. Because we believe as a church, Lord, that all things are possible through Christ. Especially when it comes to loving others the way that we love ourselves. So God, I would just ask that you would just press these things deep into our hearts and help us to experience you this week, God. And then from that experience that we have for you, that we would move out into our communities and love people the way that we really love ourselves, Lord. So we praise you this morning. We give you all the honor and glory. And we say all together, Jesus, that you are beautiful and worthy of all of our praise. So Spirit, we ask that you would come and fill this place. That we would be entranced by your beauty freshly this morning, God. I pray if anyone's struggling with condemnation, Lord, that maybe they haven't loved others the way they should. I pray that you would come and just show them how much you love them, God, and from that place that they would go out and love others. So we praise you this morning. In Jesus Christ's holy, precious name we pray. Amen.